Today's podcast brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to The Weekly Grill. Today's guest is an expert in numbers, especially in the red meat industry. He has a voracious appetite for the numbers in relation to red meat production, consumption and export all over the world. It's a warm summertime welcome to our numbers guru, Simon Quilty. Simon's the founder and boss of Global Agri-Trends Down Under. Simon, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Kerry. Simon, uh, before we discuss specifics, and I know you have some fascinating details about export markets in particular to discuss first, let's talk about your intriguing trip to many destinations as part of your Churchill Fellowship. Spectacular trip, I'm told. Where did you start? Kerry, I was fortunate enough to be a recipient last year of a Churchill Fellowship, and uh, we started in North America, um, both in the US and Canada, and then went across to Europe, um, of which Portugal, Germany, France, uh, the Netherlands uh, were part of that, and then to the UK, um, and to Ireland, and last but not least, to New Zealand. So three um, months all up, and the question that we were addressing, how to reward farmers for lowering methane. Wow. That's a big question, isn't it? That's a big question. I hope you found some answers. We're going to get, get to that later. But first of all, when you met farmers, say, in North America, in America, the United States, did you take away anything in particular in um, terms of acquired knowledge from the American community? I think, you know, it's a very different approach in America, very much driven from, one, the corporate sector, and two, the government, Kerry. And, and that was probably one of the things that jumped out at me was just the extraordinary amount of money that the government in America was throwing at this. In what seemed to me to be a bit of a scattergun approach to this issue of carbon neutrality, of methane, and a number of things. So that was the first thing that jumped out at me was truly just the amount of money. And they've got what's called the Partnerships for Climate Smart Commodities. And this time last year, it was $3.1 billion US dollars or 141 projects to be exact. So Kerry, it, it is an extraordinary amount of money and their desire to make a change is, is definitely there. The corporate sector as well has also, I guess, playing a significant role in North America. Yeah. Did you meet a broad group of people or just producers or bureaucrats or government people? Or, or what, what? I met them all. Yeah, huh? Yes, Kerry. So whether it was the USDA or individual state governments. So I think California was one of the most interesting kind of um, examples of where rewarding farmers for methane actually works. And that's based around the digester industry, whereby in the dairy sector, they're collecting methane from settling ponds, which is then further processed, cleaned, and then sold directly into the system. And that required over almost 20 odd years, both government and the private sector working very closely to legislate and put in place the infrastructure needed to make that work. Now, how much a part of this is the carbon sort of methane story 
uh, how much is it getting into the cow calf operations on a day to day basis? Very little. Mm-hmm. I would say, you know, it truly doesn't enter the radar of most operators in North America. So, Kerry, I spent six weeks all up in trying to, uh, I visited numerous supermarkets across America. There, there was none that were promoting carbon neutral beef or you know, reduced methane beef. There was none whatsoever. <laughs> and that story was told through all of Europe, the UK, and pretty well everywhere else in the world. Wow. So they, is it available? Can you buy that if is someone trying to market anything like well, that? Well, the only place in the world is, is really Australia and Coles at this point in time that's doing anything that remotely resembles that. Yeah. Um, so, no, it, I think it's, it is truly the exception, not the norm. So will it become an issue, do you think? will be? I mean, is there a possibility that we we will be paying a premium for carbon neutral beef or is that just a bridge too far? I think it's a bridge too far. Uh When talking with key operators throughout Europe in particular, but the cost of beef and lamb globally is exceptionally high. And so to be asking consumers to pay even more for what is already almost seen as an elite product is very, very difficult. So there's no doubt to me across the world when you looked at pricing in Australia by far was one of the more competitive domestic pricing compared to anyone else, it's very difficult to ask consumers to pay more. So, And and when it comes to the systems, um, who's been willing to pay what, I had a fascinating meeting with Europe's largest processor of meat, both pork and beef, called Bagard, and they're based in Paris. And they today sell almost no um, organic beef whatsoever. Yet 10 years ago, it was their number one selling items. And so much of this today is about, one, the less amount of meat that's consumed in Europe, and two, just the high cost of production full stop. And so they said today they do almost no organic beef in terms of their export sales. And then when you go to into the UK, they too have moved away from organic and are producing what we would call more never-ever programs, and mainly because the cost of production is so significantly less. So there are parts that are willing to, you might say, look for sustainable um, beef and meat, but it's got to be at a much lower cost base than what it is today. Simon, the organic market in Australia, I'm just assuming what it was like, say, 12 or 18 months ago, and that is that, that then was that there was a distinct premium for organic beef being offered in Australia. Yeah, so I think, Kerry, what you find is that the higher retail prices go and the challenges there, the more mm. difficult it is to get those premiums. And what you tend to find um, is that, you know, as prices fall and become more affordable, yeah. then some of these niche markets tend to perform better as they find a point of differentiation. But I think one of the key messages to me with organic is that as prices have got higher, more organic, you might say, has been sold 
as grinding meat, um, ground beef, yeah. because it's much more affordable um, and it you know still reaches out to the consumer to give them what they want. So you not only you know there are the challenges in pricing itself, but the makeup of the cuts or the items sold yeah. I think change as prices move higher. It's intriguing what you say about organics uh, and even carbon or often carbon neutral beef, but organics in particular because one would usually anticipate that they would be an increasing part of today's feel-good market, but not just here but all over the world, but not so. Well, I think it's just a matter of price, yeah, yeah. Terry. And, and also keep in mind that when it comes to droughts and producing organic, yeah. it poses enormous challenges because the organic production system is a closed loop. And so getting fodder and grain that is organic also in, in conditions of drought is very difficult and very costly. So what you tend to find is that as growing you know, circumstances change and, and pastures in drought get more difficult, as does grain production, then the challenges of organic production yeah. grows even greater. And the practicalities take over, don't they? And they're in their third year of drought in the United States at the moment. Three and a half years, Kerry, and it is extraordinary. Um, we have the female kill rate today at 53% and has been for this year at a record 52% on average for the entire year, but the monthly is at 53 Kerry, this truly is going to have an enormous impact for Australia on pricing not just within America but globally when rain does come to America. Yeah, because the cattle will be kept on the in the uh, in the feedlots rather than sent to market. You bet. Mm. And and with the the size of the herd today falling dramatically, and we we think that within you know the next three years that, that we will see the herd below eighty five million. Yes which yeah. takes it to a 72-year low, Kerry, yeah. and, and it just really spells out some of the challenges of the rebuilding that will go on, but also importantly, what it will, how it will impact both Japan, Korea, and I think also the Chinese market. Yes, we'll get onto that in a moment. But uh, first of all, in a general summary of your Churchill Fellowship trip, did the people you meet are they interested in what Australian farmers and grazers, especially beef producers, might be doing? Look, Kerry, I, I think, of course, there is a general interest and curiosity everywhere. But I think what I found interesting is the, the thread of common concerns amongst each of the farmers I met around the world. So equally like us, they have genuine concerns about what we call leakage, which is where you know, we do all the hard work, but other in terms of lowering methane, lowering our carbon footprint, but other countries don't, and yet get access to the same premium markets that we do. So that was commonly spoken of, particularly in Canada, the UK, and in Ireland. I think also the lack of premium, you know, they're seeing it where they are, we're seeing it here as well, in terms of rewarding farmers is a common thread. And measurement, the ability to measure accurately and compare apples with apples across various countries, Kerry, truly is a concern by many farmers all over the world. I think also, you know, 
with certain schemes, there's the liability, whether it's a 25, 50-year or 100-year um, commitment to some of these schemes, that too has many farmers deeply concerned. Yeah. And also carry heavy regulations, and this was through Europe. And it was almost like when we were there, the winter of discontent, because there were people marching in the streets, farmers, consumers, you name it, everyone is tired of the heavy, heavy regulations that the EU is you know, putting upon their farmers, and they do that through withholding subsidies, Kerry. Well, subsidies, that's my next question. The UK, will the farm operation as it exists in the UK at present, will it survive without the cap, without the common agricultural policy and the associated subsidies? It's a good question, and I think the answer to that is that it's changing already, that the UK government, now that it's separated itself from the EU, um, thanks to Brexit, have moved away from subsidising farming more and more. So I, the answer to that is that things are changing, that what ha- has gone on in the past will no longer go on in the future in the UK. But I think also with that, the UK government, like the EU, were wanting to use that as a means to try and get farmers to change their practices, to lower their carbon footprint, when you remove those subsidies, then the stick is removed as well, Kerry. And I think that's what really jumped out at me was that they are having to find also like other ways in which to incentivise farmers. You think there might be opportunities for Australian exporters? I know it's all governed by timetables, et cetera, et cetera, and certain things that are coming to force in two or three years' time. Uh, will there be opportunities for Australia to get into these countries once those subsidies are in, especially from the UK? I think so. Look, and, and here's what's deeply disappointing about our lack of, I guess, success in the EU, and, and I don't think that's any fault of the Australian government or, or our representatives. I think the EU just dug in hard. But we ideally would like both access to the UK and the EU because you might say both markets tend to complement each other. The the higher value cuts into the EU and the lesser valued items, but still important, to go into the UK. So together they would have given us, I think, um, a huge advantage. The UK on its own is good, but it's not as good as if we had both the EU and the UK together. Yeah. Time for a break. I'm on the grill with Beat Central and I'm with Simon Quilty. Back in a moment. Breathe easy with Rhinogard, the only single-dose intranasal vaccine for control of IBR in your cattle. Get in control of bovine respiratory disease, that's BRD, before it begins. Just deliver a single intranasal spray of Rhinogard for rapid IBR control and add a single dose of Bovishield MH1 for protection against pneumonia. For rapid protection against MH and IBR in your weaners and pre-feedlot cattle, breathe easy with Bovishield and Rhinogard. Available from your local vet today. 
For over 180 years, Elders has proudly been supporting Australian livestock producers. Elders supports your business across the production cycle with more than 350 livestock agents, access to specialist livestock advice and auction services. Draw on our established relationships to buy and sell commercial and stud livestock across domestic and international markets. Enjoy Del Credere guaranteed payments when you sell with Elders. Livestock funding also available subject to approval. Elders for Australian agriculture. We're back with Simon Quilty. He's the founder and boss of Global Agritrends Down Under. I've heard uh, fellow recipients of a Churchill Fellowship describe the experience of travelling through various countries and looking at ag business as the the trip of a lifetime. How was yours? How would you describe yours? Oh, without doubt, Kerry. It was a um, unique opportunity. And I think what's important is not just what you learn on your travels, but the contacts you make. And so, you know, having had so many meetings, met so many people in so many countries that I guess I'm, I've now got a reference library or point in which I can go to so many people to get their thoughts and ideas on very specific topics related to, I guess, um, you know, global warming and, and the reduction in methane, the reduction in carbon. So, Kerry, yes, both a wonderful experience, but also it provides now an important network to me. Yeah. Let's get to your recent uh, research. You've been putting the economic microscope on some countries, which are many of which are our customers for Australian beef. Now, we will go into some detail, but chatting with you, Simon, I get the impression many of your findings were disappointing or even disturbing. I think so, Kerry. I mean, we know that Asia has been challenging. And, you know, that has been, I guess, really concerning because the freezers in Asia have been full. And with that, we've seen a slowdown in economic demand across, you know, Japan, Korea, and China in particular. And so as things have slowed down, as consumer spending has got less, items have not been moving the way they should. And so China is a great example where today, We've got freezers full of imported beef sitting at three and a half year highs. I mean, record highs. And Kerry, the concern is a lot of this beef is getting its first birthday, which means it gets heavily, heavily discounted and therefore undermines the market as we move forward. This is China you're talking about? It is, yeah. I know it's been, the uh, good, there have been chockers in Japan, but I wasn't aware that there was so, uh, the freezer boxes are so full in China. I would say China's even worse. And so the good news is that the latest figures out of Japan are showing some yes, improvements. They are eating some, um, aren't they? <laughs> they are. So we went from a record in September of about 165,000 tonnes in store that's imported and domestic. To today, you know, in the last figures for December, down to 135,000 tonnes. So there is some indications, and I think the latest export figures for, in terms of overall manufacturing exports in Japan in, in the month of December have also risen substantially. So once the economy starts to get going, consumption starts to improve. And so Kerry, to me, green shoots are appearing in that Japanese market, but it can't come soon enough as far as I'm concerned. 
Now, China, um, I want to get back to Japan, but a couple of points about China before we leave it. It's got the largest corporate debt of any country, $12.7 trillion, whatever a trillion is, I wouldn't even imagine. The debt-to-GDP ratio is 286%. What sort of economic health pass card do you give China? I think it is going to be a challenging year. I mean, we were hoping by the middle of this year that we would start to see things improve in China. But I think that's becoming less and less likely, and it probably will be the end of this year. Now, we know that in the month of December, we did get an improvement in um, exports out of China of manufacturing goods. Nothing like the improvement within Japan, but still a promising sign. But everything points to, particularly with their um, real estate market, that it is truly challenging. And that is you know, yet to play out, I think, Kerry, on just how serious yeah. and difficult that market is. Um, so look, Kerry, I, I think it's a, a really interesting time. I wrote a paper last year called The Lost Years, and in, it's an interesting comparison between Japan and China, and and Japan in the early 90s was going through what seems China is going through today. And I think the similarities are extraordinary, where a housing bubble occurred in Japan, it burst, and that we saw housing prices crash. We also saw the stock market in Japan in the early 90s crash, as is today's stock market in China. What was interesting, though, that over those 10 years of the lost decade in Japan, the consumption of beef actually went higher, Kerry. And what's interesting is that at the time, Japan was one of the largest savers in terms of household spending and saving in the world. And they re-diverted their savings across into consumption. And so as housing prices fell, as stock markets fell, the need to have savings to buy these assets became less and less because they got cheaper and cheaper. So they used those savings to maintain their standard of living and that saw actually consumption of beef improve over the 10 years. So sometimes with these slowdowns, and today China is one of the best savers in the world, I think the figure is at 35% or thereabouts um, of household um, income goes into savings, that they too will look, I think, to divert those savings across into consumption as the correction in housing and the stock market continues. Yeah, real estate prices down 25% from 2021. Construction yes. down 25%. China has huge problems, as we all know, with an ageing population and falling productivity. The one question I keep asking is, is China just too big to fail? I think, Kerry, that history's told, shown us back in 2008 that no one's ever too big to fail. I mean, we know that the Chinese government will be looking to try and make this a soft landing, but, you know, they have changed their approach um, to managing the economy. Once upon a time, they would pull out huge stimulus spending, you know, have these bazookas of of economic um, activity. Um, And today that doesn't seem to be the case, that they are not 
using these macro shifting policies, it's much more of a um, a milder approach. So, Kerry, I, I can't answer that question for sure, yeah. but all I know is that, yeah, I think all markets can fail. Um, I think what's important here is that when global markets improve, such as Europe and America, that China is one of the beneficiaries. So for them to succeed, they need to export their way out of their problems. And that therefore relies upon North America and it relies on Europe. Yes, and the bottom line fact with most of our markets is the most fundamental fact and that it, these countries, China, Indonesia, Japan, cannot feed themselves and need to import protein, food especially. They do. And, and I guess what we've seen on that front is that pork is an interesting one and beef. Beef has become such a huge um, item in which they're using and importing. It's seen as the middle class truly to be, you know, almost a status of wealth. And we know the challenges they've had with their own hog sector and in terms of African swine fever, um, the rebuild and, and the liquidation, the ongoing outbreaks of diseases. And today, you know, the hog sector um, continues to be trading at around 15, 16 renminbi per kilo, which is at a loss. Yeah. So, Kerry, I, I think there are challenges within their agricultural sector, without doubt. Um and so much of what we need out of them is for the economy to pick up, which will come about when the Western world picks up, you might say. Yeah. Next market now, Simon, Indonesia. Some uplift recently. Uh, LiveX is starting to feel a bit of fizz. Is it just Ramadan or is it significant in the long term, do you think? Kerry, I think it's a challenging market. My concern with Indonesia is, Indian buffalo, and mm. it continues to play a major role in that market. And we saw a lift in live cattle exports in December in particular. I think in part that was due to um, they were delayed in allocating quota when it came to buffalo. And so we tended to have, you might say, the foot come off the accelerator they have allocated now Indian buffalo quota, um, and along with that is some Brazilian quota as well. But Kerry, I think it's going to be a challenging year into that market. I think you'll get that seasonal demand that occurs with each of the religious holidays. Um, but nonetheless, I see some real challenges because of Indian buffalo, and in particular because Indian buffalo into the Middle East and Egypt has been challenging due to the lack of foreign capital within Egypt. And so that was you know, their second or third largest market. It's slowing down and that buffalo has got to go somewhere. And I see Indonesia getting cheaper buffalo throughout this year. And so to me, it's probably Vietnam, which I think hopefully has the greatest um, opportunity this year potentially more than Indonesia. IBM is now being sold, I'm told, in wet markets up against Australia's um, uh, fresh beef. And the premium, all the the discount for the IBM is only 20%, but it's still still 20%. And when mum comes to the supermarket, uh, the uh, bigger part of the wet market at five o'clock in the morning, 20% is significant. It is. And and Kerry, that really doesn't reflect 
the cheapness of Indian buffalo globally oh. against Australian beef. Mm. It normally sits at about 35% of yeah. the value of um, you know global beef value. So obviously in the supply chain, there are some uh, costs there um, associated when it comes into Indonesia. Look, Kerry, in the past, Indian buffalo has tended to be more in the manufacturing sector and uh, Australian beef belongs in more the um, the, the upmarket section yeah. of the Indonesian economy. I don't really see that changing um, that dynamic. I think what will be more interesting is to see if um, Brazilian beef becomes more available this year within Indonesia and whether that impacts Australian. Will we ever get to see the day or the year when we send uh, seven or 800,000 live cattle to Indonesia? I think it could be a little way off, Kerry. <laughs> yeah, um, suspect. Yeah. On, on many fronts. So, look, I think uh, I'm of the opinion we will move into a rebuild phase in Australia in the herd in coming months. So, Bob, probably by June this year, we've had liquidation since uh, the second quarter of last year. And I think that that's probably continuing to a lesser extent. New South Wales was where that really took hold. And as a result, I think today's pricing we see in the market truly reflects that rebuild phase to keep going um, or start at least and, and then gather m- momentum. So whether we're going to see some of that northern Australian cattle kind of get caught up in that rebuild process, I think is yet to be seen. But in some ways, that may pull away the opportunities when it comes to live cattle exports. Yes, yeah, so South America a threat with live exports, possibly. I know they've sent a couple of boatloads up that way, but I would suspect ten, eight or ten weeks on the water that would be very challenging, even for those cheap South American cattle. I agree. Mm. And we saw that carry into Vietnam, where um, you know, a trial shipment you know, two years ago, and really carry the quality of the shipment, the what happened, and, and it truly ended up in a bit of a, um, a difficult and um, and you know really went nowhere. And I think the rest was history. They, I don't think there's been any shipments ever since. So I think the challenges yeah. and the tyranny of distance continues to be a challenge and for the, and the, and South the, America. And the threat will come from box beef, of course. Of course, yes. Yeah. And, and, and alongside uh, IBM... That's correct, and and that pressure does not go away as India, um, the buffalo herd. I think will continue to to grow yeah. within um, within India. Now, Simon, I'm looking for some good news. Is is, is America bad news in America? But is it good news for Australian beef, red meat producers? I think it is, Kerry. Um, it's just timing, and, and for a lot of people in the export sector. You know, we've been waiting and waiting for, I guess you might say, the market to lift, and it's been protracted mm-hmm. just because of the ongoing drought that's occurred. Kerry, to the best of our knowledge, there's a bubble that's presenting itself at the moment in terms of the cattle on seed report um, placements um, as of last Friday showed that, you know, there are some healthy numbers, but in particular, a lot of females are on feed yeah. in North America today. 
and it's expected that that you might say blip of you know the large number of females on feed will be washed out through the system by late May this year. And once that occurs, we expect that prices will start to lift. Also, we're hoping that there will be rain probably in the the autumn period. So we're talking in the uh, April, May or March, April, May period. Mm. Which means they'll start uh, retaining those cattle, and uh, especially females. You bet. Now, now look... uh, I, as I say, I was after some good news. That's a little bit of good news. Uh, final question: Do you? I know it's, this is almost impossible. Do you anticipate any black swan events? A black swan event. We now all know what that means. Something we can't anticipate. But if you got any thoughts on the back of your mind that might appear in world trade, in world beef trade, especially. Well, I guess we've got two wars going on at the moment. Yes. Terry. One in the Ukraine and Russia, and then we've got a situation in the Middle East. Um, We've had um, the situation with Pakistan and Iraq. There have been some, Iran, I should say, some issues on the border there. I mean, you know, these are really quite precarious times, Kerry. And, you know, I I just, always our concern is, if China or the US get dragged into these wars and what that would entail. So the black swan event, probably our deep, deep concern is that those two wars don't continue to escalate and draw in our major trading partners because if so, then I think there will be significant disruption to both supply and demand. Well, we all hope that won't happen. Simon Quilty, the founder and boss of Global Agri-Trends Down Under, thank you so much for your time today on The Grill for Beef Central. Thanks, Kerry. And thank you for joining us. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan. This has been The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Elders and Reinegard by Zoetis.